0: We as business owners look at our business from the perspective of our career, right? But that's the wrong way to look at it. You need to look at this business from the lifespan of of your company and your company needs to be immortal, right? After you leave, it actually has to be better than it is with you in it. Because if it won't be better without you than it is today, if you do not build an engine that will go further, faster, bigger, stronger than it is with you in it, then the business doesn't have future value. Welcome to the Cashing Out Podcast, where our
1: fellow founders share real stories and offer honest advice around selling their companies to some of the top acquirers in the world. My name is Todd Sullivan, CEO of ExitWise, where we help business owners create the exits they deserve. Today, my guest is George Sandman, an entrepreneur turned growth advisor after a successful exit. George shares his thoughts on creating business engines that deliver predictable profits, cash flow, and sustainable growth, which creates predictable transferable value and a more lucrative M&A transaction when it's time to sell your business. I hope you enjoy my conversation with George Sandman. George, thank you for being here today. I am uh, very excited to be chatting with you, a fellow kind of athlete or somebody that has really built a business in sports whether they worked or not, right, the passion around sports is, is really exciting to me. You've been part of the C-level of exits, companies selling. And so you've had kind of that firsthand look at what an m a transaction is like, so much so that now you are helping our fellow founders, right, get exit ready. And I think it's an enormous topic. And a topic that needs to sink in with business owners, that it isn't just, hey, I've got the financial metrics where Mm -hmm. I think my company is valuable, but what are all the other things that surround a business that actually make it transferable in a sale? And I know that is your expertise. I'm excited to dive in today. And just so much so, Mark Cuban had this spot on our podcast, and I bumped him when I knew we could get you. So thank you. Thank you so much for being here.
0: Well, please thank Mark for me and yeah, thanks, Josh. Uh, I really appreciate being here and uh, looking forward to our conversation. So I think the best thing
1: is to give us your background, right? You've been an entrepreneur, you've tried a lot of things. And so take us back from the beginning when bug hit you and, and you kind of jumped into your first, first sure. venture, or even before that. You, tell us, sure. you start where you want to start.
0: No, we'll start there. I mean, I come from a family of entrepreneurs, and uh, which will sound strange. My old man was uh, worked for a large insurance company, but he was always off running his own kingdom overseas. And my brothers uh, were both entrepreneurs. Uh, we are to this day. So, we got into my first business in nineteen right out of pretty much right out of law school in nineteen ninety four. Yes, I'm an attorney. Don't hold it against me. And the and I got the bug bad. We built that that first business over the course of three and a half years. And this is going to be this is kind of a theme in my uh, in my career. We had the uh, we had the the bubble bust in uh, that first bubble bust in the mid nineties. And that business, we had a big outside backer, and their their share price went from uh, forty some odd to eight dollars and stayed there. No happy ending. Ended up working, and getting hired by the CEO of another business down in Dallas. I was recruited to take business model from company one and fix it. And he brought me in, and we built an absolute winner. We grew a business from five guys sitting in a warehouse, you know, having a can of Bud. On a Friday afternoon, we grew that over the course of just a little over three years, we absolutely crushed it. And I you know, in you and I were just talking before the recording started that your big pop uh, should happen in your third year mm-hmm. and uh, and and that's been my experience thirty plus years as an entrepreneur. So we had a big pop, but we built a business called uh, New vision. We sold it to Tamberg on. Concept guys, you want to talk about an exit, get your buyer to buy you bef- and then build a business for them. Mm-hmm. And so it was a sort of a, a riff on an earnout, out mm-hmm. and sold that to Tamberg. Tamburg sold to, to Cisco eventually. And it was a, it was an absolute home run. So that was, uh, that was my first exit and took those. Took that experience. I was hired by the CEO of a rapidly growing business that had just finished that had finished a Series A and was was in the middle of negotiating a Series B. Um, there was a real expansion of the business. This was not a we failed with the Series A. This was we used that money and now we're going to do something else. And it was very exciting. It was in telecommunications and video conferencing. When video conferencing used to run over copper, remember copper wire, everyone? Sure, sure. Or we moved from copper wire. To IP, so you move from a by the minute business model to an all on all the time business model. That is, uh, that's selling on value, right? You have to, you have to create value and deliver value to your clients because your by the minute model has gone away. So we built that up. Actually, it was interesting. We acquired it's. Uh, if you read Patrick Lincioni's book, The Advantage, mm-hmm. uh, this business is in there. It's on page twenty three or twenty six as a cautionary tale. And and it's a cautionary tale because we acquired two businesses and had the incredible wisdom to keep both of their senior leadership teams. So if you're doing acquisitions as as part of your growth strategy, you should think long and hard, that'd be my big, big admonition, think long and hard about who, if anyone you want to keep from the former uh, leadership team. And that can be very amicable. It can also be very toxic. And this experience, it was very toxic.
1: Can I stop you there for a second? So, you know, that's interesting. We have transactions where we will help a founding team. They find their buyer. We negotiate. What we find is that the buyer has purchased companies that are competitive to Mm -hmm. our client, right? So it's not only that your management team, you have to decide who is going to go over to the other side and what their roles are going to be and negotiate employment agreements. It's who you're going to be working with, right? So you've been in intense competition for the last 10 years with a group on the other side. That is going to be, that can be oftentimes difficult to mesh the cultures and that competitiveness of two organizations. So I I bring it up only to be very aware when you're looking at a buyer, what does kind of post close look like from a work environment culture standpoint?
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And as you might be accepting an earnout, um, as a, which is fairly common, right? As the mm-hmm. founder and CEO, as you might be con- considering an earnout, understanding with whom and for whom you're going to work is critically important because the life after the transaction, especially if you're still in the business, is a very, very different world, right? And there are literally support groups for those CEOs, and um, and there's a reason for that. Yep. You know, it's, it can be very successful, but you know seller beware. I love
1: when our guests are willing to share the failure side of things. It feels like you have really gone in and grown businesses, Mm -hmm. had some pops over those third years, and it's not maybe the business model does work, but something else, whether it's timing in the market or whatever, is derails some of these businesses. Maybe you could share a little bit more of like what blindsided you guys when you clearly have the expertise for building value.
0: You mean in that specific business? Yeah, that specific yeah. one. Well, the in that business, and I have another failure that I'd be happy to that I'd be happy. Unfortunately, would be able to talk about, and it's. Uh, but in that business, we ended up having so many chiefs at the table that uh, no one. It became just a uh, just a series of political fiefdoms, and literally the the people that we had outcompeted, the people we had defeated in the marketplace, and that we purchased for their Rolodex, for their customer list and for their call centers, ended up being on the management team and having a very active role on the management team. So imagine having three separate management teams inside a business with all of their previous relationships. It was an absolute mess. And, you know, one of the things that I'm, I'm very passionate about is making sure that you have an effective senior leadership team in your business, as you prepare for m a as as it is as it becomes less and less dependent on you the founder um, I can't overstress how important that is and you know in that instance it ended up cratering the business I was happy I took a I took a buyout and I, t- I took a buyout and used that money to start a business that ended up um, actually going very very well before it went poorly well I appreciate I appreciate you saying that for me
1: there, it's two things you can have the right culture and build transferability and build real value in your business and get acquired. And if you're getting acquired by the wrong group that mm-hmm. is going to have too many chiefs in the tent, then that's going to cause problems. And if you are relying on an earnout that is now dependent on people that don't have the same culture or competed against you that can be problematic. And I feel like a lot of times that doesn't come out in MA transactions unless you have really good guidance, real knowledge of the buyers and you're doing reverse due diligence, right? When the buyer is doing due diligence on you.
0: You just anticipated my next point, Todd. A lot of people view due diligence as a buyer's bailiwick, but this is a two-way street. You mm-hmm. need to understand very, very clearly who is acquiring you, um, who you are selling to and what the world will look like afterwards. And, and I believe that that is that growing realization and often misconception, Todd, how often have you seen deals blow up, you know, at the altar mm-hmm. and, uh, and they blow up often because the CEO, the founder doesn't get cold feet, but just gets so uncomfortable with what's going to happen with the business and all the people they care about very deeply after the transaction, they just pull the plug and say, Hey, I'm happy with the way things were." Uh, Due diligence is a two way street, and you, you definitely owe it to yourself to understand very, very clearly is acquiring you? I think, you know, for for
1: us, our model serves that purpose really well, because when we introduce buyers, when our investment bankers are introducing buyers, these are buyers that they know, they know how to function. Mm -hmm. Um, We have a transaction right now, and I can't say who the buyer is, but their mantra is do not break what we buy. And so they buy competitive companies, but they keep them separate. They run Entirely separately, but there might be some synergies around, a supplier base, or they might kind of consolidate pricing, or they may trade, you know, different customers. One moves up into the next level. When a customer might think that they're go, they're leaving a company and going to another, they're actually staying within the family. And I think that we knew that ahead of time. We knew that ahead of time because of the relationship the banker had with the buyer. So. Yeah. There isn't a situation where a founder gets to the goal line and feels like, oh, no, I didn't know. I didn't know what to expect and my people aren't going to be treated well. So you got to get ahead of kind of some of the bigger stuff before you go deep into these conversations and negotiations.
0: You know, I work with advisors every day. I work with investment bankers and business advisors. And the point, you know, something that's that's implied in what you just said is, you know, if as a business owner, you think you can go this alone or go this on the cheap, that is a big mistake when you when a business hires someone like you, someone who has their best interests at heart, you are going to make sure that they're well cared for and that the buyer is going to be happy. and that that is the benefit of using really good advisors and investment bankers because they are vested in ensuring that the transaction is successful, right? Uh, and is a good match Uh, because you know there's a lot of capital out there and it's just making sure that you get capital from the right source
1: well thank you so i kind of cut you off on your entrepreneurial journey so maybe you could kind of pick it up and take us to where you are today
0: yeah thanks john so after i got a little decade of really hard charging really hard charging and i had toddlers and i decided to shift my career and got into a a new space and i got into sporting goods and i'm a very very passionate rifleman uh, hunter and i decided to i actually wrote a business plan that i meant that i was going to take to the big three ruger remington and winchester uh, back in the day and uh, and to prove that i had the chops to work you know to bring my skills to them and uh, as we worked on the business plan we decided that it actually had legs of its own Raised some capital and took that to market and was very successful and again in, in about year three we broke through that, that magical line, the million dollar line, which in the custom rifle world is a big company mm-hmm. and, uh, and continued to grow. I mean we, we were exceptionally lucky with our timing and, um, and I'll you know brag a little little skill in, in positioning the business to take the fight to a business to, to a competitor who had you know it had the market to themselves. So fast forward we get to 2008. We all know what happened. Mm-hmm. and long story short, based on uh, even though we had raised a, an additional round of capital two thousand and eight for you know for luxury sporting goods. These are our arms from, you know, our average ticket was eleven thousand four up to over a hundred thousand dollars. The guy's appetite for buying those toys at the end of the day, those you know, pieces of sporting gear dried up. And that business, I flew it into the side of the mountain and it is a great shame and I'm still sad for what happened to my stakeholders, my many stakeholders, my suppliers, vendors, uh, distributors, employees. uh, It is a terrible, terrible thing to to go through. I fought tooth and nail. I ended up filing personal bankruptcy. A lot of us, you know, many of you guys listening to this will be nodding your heads. Mm -hmm. Funny story, by the way, that business we started in Dallas, the second business, sitting around i'm a young kid i'm in my early 30s i think at the time No, late 20s and um we're talking having that that can of budweiser i was talking about and the guys were trading stories these are guys in bentley turbo r's and, and you know a couple of helicopters trading stories about their first bankruptcy or their second bankruptcy and some really desperate times and i sat there i remember it hitting me like oh my gosh this is the life that i'm signing up for and and I, I, still, I still stayed on the line. Yeah. So, so, uh, yeah, that one failed and it was a terrible. It was some very, very valuable lessons, but it failed. You know, the only good thing I have to say is that my shareholders remain friends to this day. Mm-mm. And a lot of the guys I worked with remain friends to this day. And uh, I know I disappointed a lot of people, but that that's part of being an entrepreneur, right?
1: Yeah, it, it's also part of being a sophisticated investor, right? You're making some big bets; they're betting on you, and a lot of things are not going to go your way. Yeah. Um, it sounds like you gave it absolutely everything you can. I can see being really tied up in that artisanal product, right? It's yeah. like the Stradivarius of your of your industry. In the sports industry, it, that's a tough one, right? I, I built and sold a, a business to the Amer Group, right? The, consolidator of big sports brands. And so I lived that world and it is tough. I think that one gave me the lesson of like when to get out, when you know that the size of how big, how big this business could get has a ceiling and Mm -hmm. knowing that, you know, a partnership is the thing that really will take it to keep it surviving and take it to the next level. And, you know, I know the ownership of Scott Fly Rods. Uh, mm-hmm. Right. So something similar, really kind of beautiful, beautiful product for pe- people that are so passionate about a sport, right? The outdoorsman. We actually have great investment bankers in that space, not only mm-hmm. selling the product, but selling the experiences. And so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sad, right? That that doesn't exist anymore. Well, thank you. So, you know, what, what's next? You know, you're, you're licking the wounds, sure. but. You know you've come up for air and and you're finding success
0: sure yeah so so yeah a couple of years of uh of soul searching and doing and you know and I, you know because i'm a junkie uh, helping build another business which which became uh very successful relatively quickly i will say in mostly due to the skill of my partner and uh I, she was uh, she was very skilled entrepreneur in her space and and you know, in serendipity, right? How much how much in life is serendipity? And there's a, an ad in the paper, hey, we're looking for some, I'm kind of casting around for something additional to do. And it was my partner who actually said, hey, I saw this ad, uh, you might want to go and talk to this guy. Just, not, you know, at least a guy you should know. So I sit down, long story short, I end up being introduced into this industry. And that was about 12, 13 years ago. And came on, you know, as you often do, came in as a consultant. Um, as in a, and and converted that consultancy, uh, right? I, I distinguish consultant from advisor. A consultant is a wrench turner, right? I came into audit um, and suggest fixes for a sales and marketing program. And then, you know, that morphed into being an advisor and just started to, you know, to give strategic advice to the business, getting hired, uh, becoming, you know, a very close friend and confidant with the CEO. Um, and when things were good, that was good, you know, Long story short, I ended up being in a place where I could um, where I could start my own business in the same space in uh, collaboration with uh, that private previous business, and that led me to founding Growth Drive. And we found a Growth Drive two years ago. Growth Drive. So I've been an advisor to advisor for about twelve years, a little over twelve years. Mm-hmm. And in that time, I've had the good fortune to work with over a thousand. Senior professionals, we tend to attract people with you know 25, 30, 35 years of experience, a lot of little gray hair, and we help them deliver wins for their clients. Now as you're doing that, as you're working with you know over a thousand advisors on thousands and thousands of cases, a lot of things start um, you, you know the, the human brain makes connections, makes takes the puzzle and fits it together. We see the patterns. And that's actually what led to um, to my uh, leaning into helping advisors deliver success. And I, you know, I have a personal vision that private business is the engine for the pursuit of happiness. Right? Private business is the only way that we can make a bigger pie in which everyone democratize wealth. And when I say democratize wealth, I do not mean I do. I'm a capitalist the bone. I do not mean take from one and give to another. I mean, create more and share it equitably and, uh, and not share it equitably because the government told me to share it equitably because it's good for me, my family, my stakeholders, my employees, et cetera, and the communities in which we live. And that's my personal vision. Now with that vision in mind, a lot of us as entrepreneurs, we don't know what we don't know, Right. I got good advice in that business that I flew into the mountain. I got some good advice from my fractional CFO that I ended up not taking because it wasn't convenient to take. It. How do we help? If someone had helped me understand how good the advice was, I might have taken that advice and things might have turned out in 2010 was a terrible time for all of us. How do we help business owners understand that they need to put their hand up and call you, right? And call advisors, call someone and say, hey, man. Um, we're stuck. So so many businesses are stuck. And, and I bring this around to exit and transferable value. But if I, it seems to me that unless we can get CEOs to sit up, that we can help have, have business advisors educate CEOs about what they're doing right and they can leverage and what they're not doing right or, or not doing at all, which are bottlenecks to growth, bottlenecks to transferable equity value then we won't really be able to to create a marketplace of immortal businesses. Because something that's implicit in what we've had this conversation today, Todd, implicit in what you do is we as business owners look at our business from the perspective of our career, right? But that's the wrong way to look at it. You need to look at this business from the lifespan of, of your company and your company needs to be immortal, right? After you leave, it actually has to be better than it is with you in it. Because if it won't be better without you than it is today, if you do not build an engine that will go further, faster, bigger, stronger than it is with you in it, then the business doesn't have future value. Does that make sense? A- absolutely. I think what's hitting home
1: for me is that as a serial entrepreneur, and many of our listeners are serial entrepreneurs, I, I found it very difficult to bring in coaching. Sure. And now, knowing what I know, the, the benefit of that coaching um would have been substantial uh building businesses that are transferable are exitable Mm
0: -hmm. um,
1: is a different skill set than building revenue paying your employees and taking home you know a nice salary Mm -hmm. i like the way you're saying it that um the businesses need to be immortal And I've gotten to the point in my career where that that is absolutely the way I think. How can this business run without me? How do we get it to that point? Because I see it as a child that will go off on its own and I will get to watch the, the benefits. Um, and the growth of uh, of that business, and the last business that I sold does that today, and it's really fun to look at it. Like, yep, it was set up to grow; it, it continues to grow in other hands. You've de-risked it for the next party mm-hmm. uh, substantially, and it just keeps going. And that is that is very very rewarding. I would love to take that that line into this idea of creating a business that is really transferable, and how sure. you think about there's there's value that founders think they have built and then there is transferable value and i think you're one of the few guys that that really have thought a lot about this and teach this so i'd love to kind of let you
0: riff okay thanks todd i appreciate it uh and i have a data and i we just uh i was very lucky i had forbes pick up my book published it's doing really well you know todd What's due diligence exist for, right? As CEOs, we view due diligence as, as a seller. We view it as a pain in the butt. And we, I mean, we scream, we resist, we quit, we have a tantrum that, you know, due diligence is, is a challenging process, even for the best of companies. But why does due diligence exist? It exists so that the private capital markets can understand what they're buying, right? The private capital markets want to buy low risk businesses. Put another way, they want to buy businesses in which they have high confidence in future growth, right? That the business is going to grow in value. Revenues, implicit, but value, right? Shareholder value is the name of the game. So if we think about building a business that can check all the boxes on a due diligence checklist, yeah, yeah, we do that. We do that. And we can prove it. We Yeah, we have all that. We have data. Then we have built a business that from the private capital markets perspective is going to, is in all likelihood, we can have high confidence, is going to grow in value going into the future. Cool. Now, let's bring that back to how we as entrepreneurs view the world. We view the world in terms of growth and cash flow, right? And we want to grow cash flow. We want to grow profits. We want to grow our margins. And all that's the world we live in and we focus on. And that's what I call... The two, the first two dimensions of business growth, right? Having an engine that'll create predictable cash flow that we can then invest. Imagine, ladies and gentlemen, as you think about this, imagine if your cash flow was predictable and then you can invest that money into growth. Because let's face it, outside capital is very sexy, but most of us grow using our, our own native organic cash. Cool. A business that can pass through due diligence has high strategic capacity. And strategic capacity has two elements. One is growth capacity. It's what I just r- referred to. It refers to cash and, and growth. But there's also value capacity. And value capacity goes to your M&A preparedness. How well can you cre- instill confidence in a buyer that your business is the best? It's the one they want. It's the company they have to have. Because if it's the company they have to have, are they going to pay you the lowest multiple? The middle multiple, are they going to pay you above the highest multiple? And if you think above the highest multiple, you're headed in the right place. These best in class businesses become, for example, the platforms that private equity purchases to, as, as, the, as the locus of a rollup. Now, we live in a growth capacity world. We need guys, you know, we need to better understand what creates value capacity. And value capacity is all about confidence, right? Being able to, and I don't want to get into it in detail, but that these are the things that are going to create agita in a, in a deal, right? Well, you know, you you know, okay, so fine. We never had shareholder meetings, whatever the business is growing. It's like, well, you know, the fact that you never had shareholder meetings is a real problem. You know, it's that kind of, it's an intellectual property and, uh, and contracts uh, with your key suppliers. And I can tell war stories. But, but we as entrepreneurs need to understand that just because we've created an engine that is generating cash for us and we have a good lifestyle and you know, a fast car and a big house and great vacations, that's all fabulous. But imagine if you built that business with one customer. How's the market going to view that, right? How can you sleep at night? <laughs> so there, there's the way that you view your business and experience your business and the way the market will view and experience your business. And they're different but you can make the the link, right? That connection is purposeful. It is well understood. And how does private equity make money? Private equity makes money by buying businesses that they understand very, very well. Thank you, due diligence. And then they change the things that need to be changed to increase the value. Sometimes without moving revenue meaningfully, right? They don't Sex-tuple the business, but they they will see their they will hit their return parameters and sell the business upstream. Immortality. Yep. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, it it does. We we take maybe not as sophisticated or cerebral view of the way you are talking about transferability. I, I, we tend to break it down into risk, right? So at the heart of it, the buyers are buying your future cash flows and how at risk are those That's future right. cash flows? Because the financials tell a story. And then we start to look at, You brought up one customer concentration. If all your revenue is coming from one customer, very, very risky. Supplier concentration, right? If if the world shuts down and you can't get products from China and you don't have a backup supplier, right? The business is at risk. And we built out on our site a valuation calculator that has elements of how value drivers and they really are kind of risk assessments of Mm -hmm. a business. And when you play with them, whether it's the strength of the management team, customer concentration, concentration, pricing power, IP, when you play with them that you're strong or you're weak, you can see how they change the value. And it isn't so much that the the quantitative nature of the calculator as it is, you need to be thinking about these things because your buyer is thinking about these things. Multiple buyers are thinking about these things. And the best outcomes come from the businesses that are most transferable. They're most de-risked because they bring the most buyers to the table and it creates competition. So, I, I mean, I love how you're thinking about it. You have a game plan we're really just an assessment of that. And we can say, Mm -hmm. yes, yes or no, you are risky or not risky, but you've got a real way to say, all right, you are, you are here. Let's take you to the next step and beyond to, so, so founders can create the exits that they deserve when it is time to transfer. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'd love to learn more, right? I know we're talking high level at this point, but, I think maybe these podcasts are not the right place for the truly actionable things, but could you maybe distill it down into what are kind of three things that a business owner really should be thinking about to build transferable value in their business?
0: That's a great question. So we'll keep it to three. So, one is plan. And my, my advice would be you know, one, you need to understand how much value you need. Long before there's a transaction, mm-hmm. you need to be thinking about this long in advance. Three years is a great is a great sort of rule of thumb. Sure. Five is even better. And and as you're as you're looking at the business, you know, it comes down to record keeping. You know, I, I know that sounds. Are you keeping good records? Records that that are kept the way that that the industry would expect them to be kept. Do you even know? Right, a lot of us don't. We've just got our ways of doing things, and they work for us, and that's happy. Well, are you are you keeping, f- especially your financial records, in a way that the market will recognize and be able to easily digest? I um, mean, if you don't know what that is, get some very inexpensive advice from your CPA today, and, and then keep records, keep score over time, and and start using data to manage the business. Right. We advocate using what we call business flow. It's a it's a scorecard, right? Um, none of what's on there is Is You know, what's our gross revenues, our margins, net income, AP, AR, et um, Importantly, how are we doing with predicting per financial performance and then what is our actual performance and track that? Because if you can imagine putting that all in a three ring binder and pushing it across the table to a buyer, imagine having all of that data to digest as a senior leadership team and uh, imagine the changes that would allow you to make uh, to the business, the things that it might you know you might shine the light on. It all comes down to you know you need to be able to say yes and we can prove it across all of the value drivers uh, of the business.
1: Yeah, I like that one because, you know, if you're truly collecting that data, not only is it a great way to be able to view your own business and make real business decisions, but you're giving true insight to a buyer and it might, might even break that data down by customer channel. Right yeah. or acquisition channel customer oh, size. God. When you can start slicing and dicing and proving, you can look at the business this way or this way, and this is how we made this decision. You build so much. You use the word confidence, right? Mm-hmm. Confidence in the ability uh, uh, for the the ability for the next owners to take the reins and continue the growth. Um, yeah, those are, those are great answers. Thank you.
0: Yeah, Todd, it it comes to predict and just really quickly, it comes to predictability. So don't be looking in the rear view. Try to create a world in which you're not looking in the rear view mirror to see how you're doing. Mm -hmm. You're looking out the windshield and you're predicting accurately how you're going to do and, and you're predicting improvement. And you're predicting it accurately. And and also, you know, we're entrepreneurs. We never sandbag. Don't sandbag because people will see straight through it. Yeah, Yeah. we're going to grow at 2%. Well, congratulations. Yeah. So
1: let me me ask. So you've been part of many M&A transactions, not only as the management team, but now you're helping businesses Mm -hmm. uh, get there. What do you see as kind of the hardest (laughs) shift for entrepreneurs to make when they come and hire you or the advisors that you advise? What are the easy wins and what are the most difficult things that you see shifts that are not being made that are hurting our founders today when they go to sell?
0: The, the Long before an M&A transaction, the, one of the hardest hurdles to, to overcome is transparency, right? Yes. And a business that is transparent is a business, is a good business. You have to have the confidence and the strength to be transparent with your people. This does not mean you have to broadcast your financial results to the world, mm-hmm. but let, look at public companies. And public companies, we can you know, more or less say are the best of the best, right? Now, public companies, there's very little that they do not share with the public. Coke doesn't share their recipe, but you want to know how many gallons of Coca-Cola were sold last year, or cans, or metric tons, or whatever. You can find that out very quickly. Mm-hmm. Business owners, privately held businesses, and I do not care if you're on Main Street um, or if you're, you know, well up into the the middle market, pre-middle market, middle market, you need to you need to let go and be transparent and learn to trust your your senior leadership team and your rank and file with with business data. Uh, I think that's, to my mind, is the number one. Mm-hmm. Let go so you can win. I think Gino says, you know, let go with a vine. It's mm-hmm. good advice. You've got to let go with a vine.
1: And you see that as one of the hardest things for, for entrepreneurs to really accept sure. is that level of transparency. Cause you're sure. start when you start, everything is close to the vest, right? You mm-hmm. try to keep it away from competition. And, you know, I mean, I guess that's just part of who we are, right? We keep it close yeah. to the vest, And then sharing more internally is kind of the, it yeah. sounds like the first step and that leads to what better record keeping and that transferability to the next buyer, like we talked about, or is there something in between I'm missing?
0: So, so Todd, let's imagine from, from transparency, imagine if rather than sitting down with the, you know, the sales and marketing team and looking at their numbers, then sitting down with production and looking at theirs, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Imagine if we have it all, you know, you're in your Monday meeting and you have a scorecard that has, um, that has your revenues. It has your, you know, your cash flow, It also has your lead gen. It has uh, the value of your sales pipeline. That that's quantified by stage, that you know that we're looking at our, our net promoter score or other customer sat numbers. And we start as the CEO, which you really want to be able to do, aren't you tired of telling people what to do? How would you like it if in a relatively short period, rather than telling people, you could rely on them and all you need to ask is why? Well, if, this, if the marketing numbers are up, why aren't we closing more deals? If we're closing more deals, why aren't we shipping? You know, I'm simplifying, but mm. get yourself as the CEO. You are the fundamental role of the CEO is to maximize shareholder value. You're the shareholder or mm. one of many, but maximize shareholder value within the, the, you know, the constraints of the business's vision and mission. Cool. You know, so now you have to create strategy. That's your role. You're, you're the, you are the strategic leader of the business. And you should be asking why not telling how. Mm-hmm. And so Todd, to, to hit on this point by sh- by creating transparency, you are empowering your people to collaborate with accountability towards the success of the good. business. And we can talk about how we can make that success good for them. And it should be a uh, very directly like what's in it for them, but that transparency leads to collaborative accountability. And, um, and it's, it's, it's a game changer. Yeah, I would think
1: for job satisfaction as well, right? If you yeah. know, if you can, you you know what numbers are important, right? Management yes. has put that to you. Or the CEO has put that to you, and and you can work with others because the numbers are inherently visible to everyone, right? <laughs> yeah. You you work together to hit, hit hit the goals that are laid out there for you. Less less mystery in your job, mm-hmm. I would think. Look, this has been awesome. I don't want to cut it short. But I want to be respectful of your time. Is there, is there anything else that you want to share with, with our audience about M&A and how, you know, you're, you're helping uh, business owners and advisors of advisors create great outcomes? Because that's, that's what, from our lens, that's what we see that you are doing.
0: Sure. You know, there are so many topics that I could hit on, but, you know, I, I think it's really pause a beat, right? Pause a beat and think about what you're doing. And take the time to be intentional and think about what this business means to your family, what this business means to your, and really think about this, write it down. What does this business mean to everyone who's involved in it? And what does it mean? Be selfish. What does it mean to you? If you need to get $20 million at the deal table, write it down and understand that number and that that is the right number and then start working backwards. right? The military says, hey, we want to take X hill. They start planning backwards from there. Let's do the same thing. Start and get outside advice. It is not hitting your PL. This is balance sheet advice. This is you are investing in creating a happier outcome. And I'm not here to flog advisors. I'm here to say that you don't know what you don't know. And that maybe, Todd, I should have said that's the one thing you you've never done this before ask yourself if you're if you're doing 20 million dollars of revenue with 10 points of margin have you ever run a business that does at 40 million with 15 points of margin and if you haven't ask yourself what you might need to know to get there and go get some advice that's the get get some advice
1: george that's perfect thank you I really appreciate the time. This has been great. Is there uh, any way people can get a hold of you? Maybe you could talk about your book for a second. But just uh, yeah, if people want to reach out,
0: sure. I'm very easy to find. My last name is Sandman. S A N D M A like it sounds. And so I'm, fortunately or unfortunately, very googlable. And I have, I do have a book out there on Amazon. Get this on the, you know,
1: growth driving advisor
0: business. It's called the growth driving advisor. It's doing very well. I'm blessed to have had the experiences uh, working with advisors on these cases. And if you want to get hold of me, you know, just reach me through the company. I, and I am, you know, you know, it's kind of my buzz phrase, but I'm happy to help, right? I am glad to help. Please call. And, and you know, you hear me say, it in, I put out a lot of videos, you do not need to be a customer of the company. Our vision, our vision as a business is is to help increase capacity in the three dimensions of growth for a trillion dollars worth of privately held businesses and i do not predicate that on folks doing business with us i am Mm -hmm. deeply committed to hitting that vision so that's awesome thank you george yeah really really appreciate the
1: time thank you same thanks thanks again for listening to the cashing out podcast For more founder exit stories, please subscribe to the Cashing Out podcast on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And please remember, ExitWise.com and the Cashing Out podcast are for entertainment purposes only. This should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions.